Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jacob Marley is dead. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the podcast you are about to listen to. On Christmas Day, on Christmas Day, I saw three ships come sailing in on Christmas Day in the morning. So I'm working on a new character for my Masters of the Universe um, setup. Um, you know, He-Man is the most powerful person in the universe. Uh, She-Ra is the most powerful woman in the universe. So He-Man's the most powerful man. she is the most powerful woman. And I've been kind of stifled lately because I don't want to just keep redoing the same stories over and over again. I think part of the fun of a toy line is that they come out with new toys and new stories to keep the adventure always going. So to fix it and freshen it up, I've come up with a new character. Dare. D-E-R-E, Dare. And Dare is the most powerful person in the universe. And Dare is non-binary, no gender, and they are just the strongest one there is. And they are, I am, I'm looking forward to writing more stories about them. But what I'm also looking forward to, John, is talking about this movie where we watched this week. What did we watch, John? Well, we we certainly watched a movie that is not, um, I think as progressive as your new toy might be. Uh, we are watching The Ghost of Girlfriends Past because this is Jacob Marley is Dead, a podcast where we uh, combat the gender norms of the He-Man universe, but mostly we talk about A Christmas Carol. I'm your host, John. And I am your sidekick, Jim. Call me Mattel. <laughs> <laughs> Get him on the horn. He's got ideas. And uh, like I said, we're we're uh, we are watching a Christmas Carol, but not really a Christmas Carol, is it, Jim? This is a little bit of a um, of a departure from what we've been doing up until this point. For those of you who have been paying attention, we've talked about the novella, A Christmas Carol. We talked about the uh, very classic 1951 version of the story featuring Alistair Sim. And we talked about the 1970s musical starring Albert Finney. All of which, while they have their unique features, hew pretty close to the line in terms of following the story. And now we're making a departure a little bit. Yeah, when we started this, John, one of the things we talked about were the different versions of A Christmas Carol that have been done in adaptations that are out there. And I think to this point, we've stuck true to like the most traditional ones. But now we are kind of getting the last version of it, which is using the structure of A Christmas Carol to tell a different story with a different moral. Um, there's a, this isn't the only one out there, but this was the one I wanted to start with because I've, 
I remember about 10 years ago hearing a review of it that was actually kind of positive. So I've always been curious, but I never had a reason to review this story. So tonight we are recording our episode on Ghosts of Girlfriends Pass. Starring Ghosts Matthew McConaughey's Pass. Starring Girlfriend. Oh, sorry. Nah, I'll take that back. Starring Matthew McConaughey. Just this close to the McConaughey sans, if that's what it was called, or the McConaughey or whatever they came up with back when he was the greatest actor in the world back in 2012. So we're past that. We're not there yet. Uh, we're past it now, but we weren't quite there in 2009. So this is just after like Fool's Gold, if I'm not mistaken, like the real bottom of the barrel Matthew McConaughey movies. And this is maybe just before he turns the corner. Yeah, so this is uh, 2009. Take yourself back to a simpler time. Uh, <sighs> Matthew McConaughey, up until this point, was primarily known for romantic comedies. This is actually, if I'm not mistaken, this is like the final romantic comedy in the saga that began with, I guess, The Wedding Planner? Was that 2001 that he did The Wedding Planner? And then there was like kind of a bunch of them in the middle. Some very mm-hmm. successful some not so much. Um, Fun facts about this movie. So this was originally offered to Ben Affleck. Picture that. And it was originally going to be directed by one Kevin Smith. Both of whom turned it down. And Jennifer Gardner, not to skip ahead, is in this movie and was married to Ben Affleck. John, do what time do we know when they got married and like were they going to meet on this movie because it's possible like this is interesting because if they had met on this movie and like this is where they had their you know their magic moment they became married after this that would have been kind of a great story but uh that's not the story that was told here i so i do not know nor do i have the desire to go look up when the span of like the benefer years was um i don't know and i did think about that when i saw that fact i also thought about would this do you think this movie would be better or worse directed by kevin smith prelude to an answer i am a huge kevin smith fan i first movie of his i ever saw was mall rats i fell in love with it i'm a comic book nerd it was i was a young eight, nine-year-old boy when I saw the first one, way too young. And I became a fan of it. And then I saw Clerks right afterwards. And so to sum that up, I'm a big fan of his earlier work. And I am still a fan of him. I think he's a great podcaster. I think he's a good person. Uh, I don't like everything he does, all of his movies. I think sometimes he's not safe with the camera, but he's definitely like uses simple like framing and shots and stuff like that. Um, I don't, I don't know that that would have hurt this movie at all, (laughs) but I still don't think that would have made this movie a better movie. And I think because we're going to get into this, John, but this movie has some tone problems. It has. Yeah. Yes. It has, it, it, it has two different movies. It's trying to be at the same time. And one of those movies I really like. And then one of those movies, can go jump off of a dock somewhere like it is wait a minute that's, yeah. that's not the phrase what is it take a long walk off a short dock or something like that I'm trying to quote that, old that works for me yeah so this was directed by excuse me mark waters who at best you would know from mean girls 
Okay. Uh, Freaky Friday as well. The, the Freaky Friday remake, just like heavens in there as well. He produced 500 days of summer. So this is a guy who by and large has a pretty good track record as a director a few flops, and we can talk about that as well. Uh, this was also written by John Lucas and Scott Moore, who are a, a writing team you may know from The Hangover, okay? Probably one of the most successful comedies of our generation, if we're just looking at it in terms of longevity. So there's some cachet behind this movie, but uh, bearing in mind, both Mark Waters and the team of Lucas and Moore have spotty track records a lot of successes and a lot of things that are just misses and i when you say the hangover john not to jump again to the end but it definitely sets the stage for the divide of tones because i my theory on this is that they were trying to make a hangover type of comedy right there are certain characters we'll talk about that definitely play into that and Mm -hmm. then you take jennifer gardner and matthew mcconaughey and I think they were trying to make a much different type of movie with their performances and what they were trying to say here. And you mm-hmm. say this is at the end of Matthew McConaughey's romantic comedies. It feels like that. It feels like he's trying to say something here. And um, I'm looking forward to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, why don't we do that, James? Why don't we All do right. that? This is Jacob Marley is dead. And we are talking about ghosts of girlfriends past. One was in those ships, all three, on Christmas Day, on Christmas Day. And one was in those ships, all three, on Christmas Day in the morning. Our movie begins with a uh, a straight down drop shot into the streets of New York of all places, the only city that exists in movie worlds. Th- this could have really been any city in the world. It was just establishing that this person is in the city and maybe they were trying to say something about all the craziness with the city or like whatever with that zoom down shot. Very unique well, choice. I think if you have somebody who's like a successful artist and you show that their their work is in New York City, what you're communicating is like, this is a person at the top of their game. And the person we are talking about is our Ebenezer Scrooge. In this, young, hot Matthew McConaughey, who goes by the name of Connor Mead. And Connor Mead is, from what we come to understand very quickly, a fashion photographer. And also, John, we find out very quickly is a scumbag. Um, I have it written down here. Music cue drops. He comes out of the car wearing those boots, and immediately I dislike this man. It's just, it's the, it's the, everything they're stacking on top of them. Hipster type of music, hipster outfit, that ride, that zoom down onto him is pompous. And it all just makes you like, who the heck does this guy think he is? And he hasn't even said a line yet. Yeah, this is within seconds of the movie starting, and we're already visually establishing facts about this character, which I guess, I mean, 
credit where credit is due, this movie does a very good job of establishing who this person is right away. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. what they establish is a character who I think is very difficult to redeem, especially in 2021, watching this movie in the post Me Too era. A lot of stuff that plays out in the next couple of scenes that I think we're supposed to take as a joke feels incredibly predatory to me. And and and, and here's the thing about it. Without going into each individual action, because there are a lot of different ones. Most of the time, and I ca- try to keep a track of this, he's not the one initiating physical contact. It's the other partner. I'm sure there might be an example. Well, there is a very clear example later on in the movie where he initiates physical contact. But it's it's still creepy. It's still in the workplace. It's still not appropriate. And And what's funny is maybe this was an attempt to try to make it comical in the beginning. It just makes me dislike him even more, which makes this attempt at re- like this journey like, no, he's a Scrooge. He's a scumbag. And I like making me not like a Scrooge. If you're making me not like a Scrooge, you're doing your job as a movie. Yeah. So let's so let's get into that. So where your traditional Ebenezer Scrooge is an an older kind of miserly disgruntled person who does not care about humanity. He only cares about his own bottom line and his own gain, regardless of of how it impacts the others around him. Connor Mead is similar, but where Scrooge values money for Connor, it's it's empty, meaningless sex. It's his ability to manipulate women into sleeping with him without forming attachments. So um, immediately he walks into this building and he's um, basically walks in and within seconds of being in this building, he's snapping a photo. And the photo is of all of these women in lingerie kind of lounging all over this desk. And you're like, oh, okay, he's that kind of a dude, right? And then we meet the Bob Cratchit of this movie, uh, Melanie, who is his assistant. And James is already making faces over the Zoom, so I'm sure he has some thoughts about this. And- I mean, look, I just, before we get into it, calling her the Cratchit is correct. It's what I have written down as well when we were at this point in the movie. But this person doesn't, is not a Cratchit. Doesn't do everything the Cratchit does. It's the closest thing we have to a Cratchit. So it gets that title. But there's no Tiny Tim connection there. There's no Mrs. Cratchit. It's Mm -hmm. the Cratchit archetype is in this character. You don't get the impression that they have a bad relationship, just that he's a stuck up artist and she's his long suffering assistant who like doesn't have a social life and works weekends and whatnot. Um, and he's approached by the, these two women in lacy lingerie who are like, hey, like, do you want to get dinner later or whatever? And he's like, oh, I don't I don't know if I'm going to have time. But then as they're walking away, he does like the dumb, like framing a picture with his thumb and forefinger looking at their rear ends. And then Melanie's like, oh, should I book them? For something and he's like oh yeah book them and she's like together or separately and he's like yes not to quote the whole movie but like that's that's the level we're working at here is like he's just kind of this philanderer um and the the big like not save the cat like whatever the opposite of a save the cat moment is shave the cat kick the cat moment is he goes in to photograph this this young music artist for uh vanity fair and basically, like within he he walks up to her and he has all of his assistants there setting setting up this shot that 
um, he's supposed to do. And she's clearly like a fan of his, like she appreciates his art and work and she expresses that. And his response to her is basically like, yeah, I really like you too. I'm not, I mean, I'm not a brain dead 12 year old, so I don't like your music, but I really like your face or whatever. So he negs her immediately, just like immediately kind of comes in with that. And then his assistants are stripping her out of her clothes. Yeah, they're stripping her out of her clothes. She's this was not what she signed up for a photo shoot. She thought she was going to have a nice outfit on, definitely, definitely sexy, definitely very attractive, like photo shoot type of setup. But then, no, her, his assistants come in, disrobe her, and she's completely off kilter. She doesn't know what's going on, and before the audience can even know what's going on, we just know our Scrooge is negging this woman here who's for a photo shoot. John, there's an archer in this movie. Yeah. Yes, there <laughs> there's, is. There's an archer in this movie. We and so an apple is put on the the is she a singer? That's what she's a she's singer. She's a singer. Yeah, yeah. So an apple is put on the singer's head, and we're like, oh no. And you're thinking, maybe a, a, a gun is what I went to in my head. Like, I don't know. But nope, not a gun. It's a freaking archer. And not like an archer from like a, a college or something like that. No, John, uh, please describe to us how does this archer appear in this movie? Yeah, so it's so the person is described as an, an Olympic, like sixth place Olympic archer. Um, but they are um, an Asian woman in a like kimono, basically, or, or a, a gi that comes in with a compound bow and shoots the apple off of this woman's head so that he can get this shot of like the apple exploding. And it's a thing. It gets called back later on in the movie, but it's, it is one among a series of things in this movie that is there to be a beat, but does not do much to contribute to the story. I think the only thing that it does for us is tell us that Connor Mead, the thing that he cares about is successfully creating his art, and disrespecting women. <laughs> Those are his, basically his two things wrapped up in this one alarming moment. And it's funny, in that moment, I kind of settled an internal argument that I've been having with myself uh, for the past, I don't know, ever, um, about filmmaking, about pushing actors to get a performance, to get a moment. You hear stuff from different... Like the Stanley you know, Kubrick kind of thing where he terrorized Shelley Duvall on The Shining? And and, you, and people say, yeah, you know, she maybe had trauma, but the film lasts forever. And and I've always been like, I can appreciate the art, but I don't think that was right. And then and I've been leaning this way, but this film just cemented my opinion, which is no, this crap yeah. is done. I don't want to see this. I don't care about the auteur theory. I don't care that it is forever and it, it, it justifies it. It doesn't. So I... I <sighs> I think the what they're trying to do here, right, is show that the way he can like kind of manipulate women. I think that in 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 2021, where now we are seeing all these reports of these artists, I mean, even Joss Whedon, there's all this stuff that's coming out about how he creates like toxic environments on sets and whatnot. Um, but and and that's just like a toxic environment of like weird gaslighting and harassment, not not sexually predatory stuff. But I feel like what we see play out here when she's being disrobed, like I think it in two, 20 in 2009, I think that could play for comedy, but you watch it now and it's like deeply unsettling and uncomfortable. And I think that it pushes a character like Connor, which 
we are ultimately supposed to root for by the end of this. It pushes him into a place where the ending is going to feel hollow because he's such a, a terrible person. But anyway, his negging and shooting an arrow at her head thing apparently works because literally in the scene after we see um, somehow the photo has been developed and is already on his desk, which I thought was kind of weird. And and he's hooking up with her on the couch. And to his credit, it's an amazing photo. Yeah, uh, yeah. We'll move things along here. So so Melanie, the assistant, comes in and she basically busts into the room as he's being like straddled by this woman who's like zipping herself out of her dress. And... Um, and she's like, uh, you don't have time to hook up with this floozy because I arrange your calendar and your brother's wedding is tomorrow. You have to be there in like Rhode Island for the rehearsal dinner tonight. And he's like, oh, that's tonight. Like, I don't even know. Um, and then she also is like, well, I have these three women that you've been hooking up with who have all called in to try to talk to you. And he's like, well, I don't have any time to so just put them on a conference call. And I, I think that I think that you could cut all of that business with the apple and the photography and have this be your moment. And it would make him less of a predator and more just of like a scummy guy who needs to learn to treat people better because he breaks up with all three women on a conference call where they can all see each other. And it's a very funny scene. And it plays, I gotta be honest, it plays really well now that we all are accustomed to zoom calls and stuff like that. Like this, like this was, I mean, there were definitely conference calls back then clearly, but it's just like, no, yeah, I could see somebody. I, I bet somebody has done this during the pandemic. One of the women says, calls him like a miser that he, and says that he hoards love, which I was like, it's, it's too on the nose. You don't need to put it there. We all get it. Like, we get it. Your audience isn't dumb, despite how dumb you think your audience is. And this movie does think that its audience is pretty dumb. I will say that. Well, yeah. I mean, it's... Yeah. (laughs) It was the 2000s. Yeah. So it's it's wintertime, and um, he drives out of the city to Rhode Island, and as he's pulling up to this gorgeous estate, right? So we, we know that it's his uncle's is his his late uncle's estate um, where this where his brother's wedding is going to be held. He pauses for a moment and he looks at Chekhov's swing set, which we're going to see come back in, in, in a little bit. And we know like, oh, there's some emotional connection to that because he looks serious and, and sad music is playing. Yeah, it's a real it establishes a tone. It definitely I was not expecting the mansion like I was expecting when he was pulling up, oh, they've rented the mansion for the wedding and everyone's going to stay at the mansion. No, this is just, they straight up own this freaking place. And I gotta be honest, that level of wealth doesn't make me want to root for this guy anymore. So like he's already a predator. He's already loaded, you know, and he has the most, he has Buckingham palace in the USA. So yeah, not really a sympathetic character here. Yeah, uh, certainly not for a 2020 post me to eat the rich kind of audience. Um, Meme the rich. Meme the rich. So we're about to be introduced to several characters. um, Most of my least favorite characters in the movie and one of my two favorite characters in this movie. So I know who. (laughs) So the the wedding is being officiated by the Sarge, uh, played by Robert Forster, who is a, a Korean War veteran Marine. And every line that this guy says is funny. This, this is one of the best characters in the whole movie. Um, 
I love, sorry, I love how they had to make it Korea because they couldn't even try to sell us that he was a knob. Like, right. Well, like, and it's funny because he has like a chip on his shoulder about it. Like, we, he's like, we didn't get a movie. We just get this, just the just sitcom with Alan Alda. Yeah. <laughs> we got freaking MASH. And it's like, it's a, it's a, it's hilarious. If you weren't there watching your buddy die each week, it's like, yeah, I guess for a whole generation, that would have been kind of a traumatizing sitcom. But eh, it was the 70s and 80s. We don't care. Yeah. And I think he 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 gets a pass because what is written for him is genuinely funny, but he is overwritten as are many of the side characters in this movie. Like basically the whole wedding party with the exception of his brother is is working so hard to be like a funny cut em up wedding comedy it's when it does when. Yeah, or probably more like Wedding Crashers. Like, uh, don't you think that that's probably more contemporary with this? I think it's, I mean, whatever movie this crew has put together, I think it's the same type of thing. We're going to find one attribute to our non-main characters, right? If So Jennifer Gardner, Matthew McConaughey, they have many different layers. They, you know, some positive attributes, some not so positive attributes, but they are three-dimensional characters and the brother, but we'll get to him. Yeah. Everybody else is one note played at 11. Okay. Yeah. Normal volume goes to 10. These characters go to 11. And so we've got the dad who was in the military. Is he the dad with a little bit of a reference, but he's a three dimensional character? No, he's an extreme version of that. We've got yeah. the bridesmaids. Are they fun party girls a little bit, but they've got different character traits? No, they are there for one thing and one thing only to get some. I don't want to go too blue with this podcast, John, but it's it's well, but this that's this whole movie, right? So the right. The, the bridesmaids are all there to hook up, mm-hmm. right? That's their entire goal. Then you have the the groomsmen, right? So his brother's friends from work who are like the wish dot com version of the Hangover guys. They are I, I, the most crushingly unfunny characters I have ever seen in a comedy. And yet I was rooting for them. Those poor schlubs. Those poor yeah. stupid schlubs. They were like three curly Joes. Yeah. You could so cut every them. line that they have in this movie and not affect it one iota. They are just not good. And I think there's a version of this where you could write like some really genuinely funny stuff for them. And it would be like a nice bit to cut away to these guys who are like a cut up every now and then. And it's just not that they are super bad. We'll get over, we'll go over this again, but there are, you could say that for almost everything in this movie, that there is a version that if you just do a second or a third draft to this script and just tighten a few things and develop a few other things, it's, uh, not a bad structure, which I think speaks to the strength of the novella, honestly. Like, yeah. this is a solid concept for redemption and change and love. And even with a bad cast of characters, it raises the stock of this movie up to a level that it shouldn't be at because of that. Yeah. So, um, and and finally, we have the brother, right? So... So Matthew McConaughey's brother in this movie, Paul, is getting married and he's kind of he's our Fred, um, I would say. And yeah, in many ways, I think also takes on a lot of the emotional weight of of Cratchit. Right. I think that's fair. I think he, yeah. he definitely has the, the you're you're crapping on the aspect of Cratchit, but also and we'll get into the, the best. He's going to suffer movie. like the, the kind of third act tragedy of Cratchit as well. So, yeah. 
and but he also has the some of the speeches that Fred has, which yeah, well, oh, I can't wait to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So right away we can see that there's a different dynamic in the relationship. So this is not Scrooge and Fred, where Scrooge is emotionally wounded and keeps Fred at arm's distance. We get the impression right away that Matthew McConaughey genuinely cares a ton about his brother, but definitely does not think he should be getting married. He Much like the, Scrooge didn't think Fred should be getting married. Right, which I did like that little connection uh, there. That was a nice natural thing to put in. But yeah, and we'll get into the, you know, more examples of this, but he, it's the one relationship that he's allowing himself to connect with. It's the one mm-hmm. person left for him to love. I mean, not yeah. really. We know later on what happens, but he's like, he's all in for his brother. And he genuinely does not want his brother to get married because he does not believe in marriage. And he's in these earlier yeah. scenes, he's like, here are the keys to the car. I will cause a distraction. Run. And he's not joking. He is 100% like, I know this is crazy, but nobody should be putting themselves in this. This is, He has convinced himself that the concept of marriage is flawed. And we'll get into the reason he has that thought. But like, he's not there to like, yeah, you know, you want to get, you don't want to get married, right? Like the little in the ribs type of thing. No, this is 100% don't do this. And and there's a point coming up where I'm going to actually kind of agree with him, but we'll talk about yeah. why. So, uh, and then we're introduced to Jennifer Garner's character, who is one of the, um, I would say, three genuinely good characters in this movie. Okay. Yeah, really good performance too. Jennifer Garner's stuff yeah. sometimes lands a little false for me. I think yeah. directors have a difficult time getting her cadence just right. Well, Jennifer Garner, I think just as a person is so like her whole demeanor is so blindingly sincere. It can be difficult for you to read the general emotion in what she's doing because she comes off so um, like bright and sparkly. And this movie actually gives her some opportunities to do some really heavy lifting in terms of acting that I appreciate. What it does not do is give her much character development until like two thirds of the way through the movie, because for this first couple scenes that she's in her only role is to be the foil to Matthew McConaughey. She's just there to kind of snipe at him and, and hint that there's some broader connection that the two of them have. But he has been such a scumbag up to this point that instantly I'm on her side. Right. And I believe that he has done something to her. There is no reason to doubt that he hasn't screwed her over we kind of get the implication that they definitely have hooked up at this point. Like we don't know mm-hmm. the details of the relationship. We don't yeah. know all that goes on there, but we know something went down in the past. They definitely hooked up and it's not good now, but they're still, they're still friendly with each other as they snipe each other, which it's Beatrice and Benedict from much ado about nothing. It's that exact dynamic. So we have a scene where Connor goes up to his room and he's like disgusted by all of like, it's full of wedding decorations and like scented candles. I think it's his uncle's old room because there's a giant picture of his uncle Wayne, um, Michael Douglas uh, on the wall. And yeah. he talks about how uncle Wayne would be so disgusted by this because uncle Wayne used this place for like multi multiple day long orgies and like never got married, didn't believe in marriage. And he and Jennifer Garner have this back and forth about it that kind of shows like, oh, so the the moral core of this is like Matthew McConaughey doesn't believe in the institution of marriage. And we're gonna get that really punctuated the that night at the rehearsal dinner. Oh boy, this 
I'm going to make a kind of a crazy statement now. I can't think of too many rehearsal dinner scenes in movies. I'm sure I've watched a bunch of other ones. This one's sticking. This one's in the memory. Yeah. This one is intense. And it starts off with one great little moment, which is Matthew McConaughey is sitting at a table drinking, like hardcore drinking. And a couple of kids just run past him and he yells, slow down. And, oh, he doesn't like kids either. Or he's yeah. afraid of them. Or he doesn't know how to, like, all of that is like playing and bubbling up to the surface as he drinks and drinks and drinks. Yeah. And this is a, this is actually, I think, one of, with a few blemishes, one of the better scenes in the movie. Because there's a guy sitting at a table across the way who I think is this movie's version of the charity collectors who, who kind of leans over to him and is like, hey, you're like the photographer, right? Are you going to photograph the wedding? And, and he's like, no, I'm not, a, I'm not a wedding photographer. But it's your brother's wedding. And he's like, yeah, I know. Right. So and that's definitely supposed to stand in for that, like, charity collector kind of thing. And then um, Paul. Oh, wait. Before Paul asks about the toast. So Paul and and his his bride to be enter and his bride to be is played by um, Lacey Schubert who uh, is one of the 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 girls from Mean Girls. She's kind of like the um, the brunette Mean Girl. And this is. Original voice of Meg from The Family Guy. Yeah, yes. And a lot of other, she did a lot of other cartoons as well. She's done some DC stuff. She's got a very impressive resume. This is a really bad character. This is very badly written. One Dimension, Bridezilla, and it's offensive. And it is, she has one solid acting moment in the whole movie. We'll get to it later on. Mm -hmm. But everything is, like I said, it's at 11. And it's... It's playing that one note, and because that note isn't a good note, it's grading the movie. It's it bring yeah. every but you're just waiting for her not to be in a scene, which is not the type of character we want. There, we want to be cheering for the bride, like we do for the brother. We are supporting Paul, our Fred, in this movie. I don't like this bride. And yeah, that's it's not really. Good. Because Paul is like a really sweet, kind, patient character, mm-hmm. and this is a weird matchup. It's very difficult. The two of them have almost no chemistry together because her whole character is like perfectionist anxiety going crazy. So she walks into the scene and immediately has a, like you're saying, a level 11 freak out about the fact that there's no figs in the salad. And I don't know if this is supposed to be a moment where Matthew McConaughey looks at her and is like, yeah, why would you want to get married to that? Like this confirms my bias. It kind of makes him look right. And maybe that's what they were going for. I think I know why they wrote this character this way. And it's because of something that's going to come up in kind of the third act that um, throws everything out of control. But I think it's a really poor choice. I think it's a lazy writing choice. And we'll talk about why in a second. But she, it's it's just bad. This whole character is not good. And to f- finish up on her real quick, to get to that third act choice that they're going to get to eventually, you need to start this way lower low with that energy she's upset you know she's upset but she's not overdoing the performance there then x thing goes wrong and then keeps going on from there and keeps getting worse and worse and worse then you build but there's no build here no figs fudge it all we're done 
Um, basically, like, the brother calms her down, and I don't know if that's just supposed to be like, look how good they are for each other, because she's crazy, and he calms her down a little bit, and that's the whole dynamic of their relationship. It's unfortunate. It's I found it insulting. I'm not, and I'm not a woman. I would feel insulted watching this, but that's just me. Um, I, I, I'm not a woman, and I felt insulted. So yeah. <laughs> so immediately after this, Paul asks um, Connor to give a toast at the wedding. And um, even Jennifer Garner, who's at the table with them, is like, oh, that's probably not a good idea. Um, and Matthew McConaughey. So and this is the Fred inviting Scrooge to dinner moment of this movie, because McConaughey goes into this kind of inebriated, callous speech about how what does he say here? Uh, marriage is an archaic and oppressive institution and love is magical comfort food for the weak and uneducated, which is our um, surplus population line for this movie. Right. That's yeah. the, we're going to see that come back. Um, and basically he lays it out there and he's like, I wish I believed in it, but I don't. And he storms away from the table. There's a great shot of him at the table drinking um, and he's got this big glass and he's drinking, he's drinking. There's this one shot where he takes a swig after one of those types of statements and he's got a freaking huge grin coming through the glass, but because it's coming through the glass, it's upside down and it just, I doubt they meant this to be in there, but it just gives this idea of him just like he is putting out this facade and, and he, maybe he does on some level believe it, but he is dying on the inside. and. Yeah. This anger that's coming out in this scene is that he is hurt people, hurt people, and he is <laughs> hurting right now. And that's yeah. gonna, and, we're, and I probably have said that on the previous episode. That's a Christmas Carol. That's what's yeah. happening in this story. And he is suffering right now. So he is just throwing it back at everybody and anything that doesn't line up with that. <laughs> and it's so frustrating, okay, because. I would say that McConaughey's performance in this is really good. He does a really good job for the type of movie that it is. And this character had the potential to be something really interesting until we find out why he's this way. And it's, and it's so upsetting. So um, he ends up in the bathroom taking like, cause he's been drinking for a while. So he's, he's like splashing some water in his face and he turns around and his dead uncle Wayne is, is taking a kind of old man piss in the urinal. Um, I really like Michael Douglas in this part. I think that he is underwritten and underutilized, but I like the idea behind this character. So he's kind of like a Robert Evans type or like Hugh Hefner. I feel like that's the vibe that's coming off of him. Yeah, he's got like that, you know, 60s, 80s, still got it, 60s swinger, like 1960s swinger type of vibe going on with him. Like, yeah no consequences type of sex type of dude and yeah. he's solid in that respect of like the premise for him and the idea that he would die spoilers he's dead um yeah. and he's telling mcconaughey that i did it wrong dutch which is his nickname for him like i i've i it wasn't about that which is all good i just could have done with a better intro at this moment in the movie like something a little bit more like, okay, so they're in the bathroom, right? Right. The way I remember it, maybe it was something closer to this. He just walks into the bathroom and he's standing against the wall. Think of this as the intro. 
McConaughey comes in, taking a leak. He's at the urinal. And shoulder to shoulder, Uncle Wayne comes up. Two sexist guys there just going, taking a leak. I think that, and, and in one frame, you know, doing the uh, hands thing here that McConaughey does, in my mind, like, that's a cool intro. And yeah. gives him a second to get it. We don't get a really cool intro here for this character. Yeah, I remember thinking they could have done something with this to make to make it a little more interesting. So the... <sighs> This scene also, so right, like the Marley scene is usually the moment where we're like really thrown for a loop. And I think this comes close. I think the thing that we're really missing here is I don't understand why. I don't understand why Uncle Wayne wants to to help him, why Uncle Wayne wants him to change. And this scene is basically like this scene. And there's one near the end where we'll get like this sort of wishy washy like. Uh, life's not all about this swinging lifestyle, but we never, it's a lot of telling, no, absolutely no showing. We get absolutely no real sign that Wayne actually has a distaste for that lifestyle because that's not, because I think the character is written to be a comedic character and a parody of Robert Evans, the producer of like Chinatown and the Godfather and all these other things. Like that's what he's based on. And I think that they get so married to doing the parody and the caricature that they forget to make this a character that has any meaning in the movie. And what is the exact philosophy here that you, everybody needs to be married, that everybody needs to be married to be happy. I don't think that's a positive message. Is it that you need to be open to love? Well, that's good. And that's a wonderful thing. But what does that have to do with free love? Like, I don't want to stand in judgment of somebody who, you know, no kink shame. If you are being safe and you're being respectful and not predatory, free love is free love. And I'm not going to stand in judgment of that. Right. As long as you're being safe. Right. So I do think that I think that what we're led to, I think that what we're led to believe, though, is that like what what uncle Wayne is was advocating for in his lifetime. I wouldn't call it free love. I'd call it like Coke parties and hooking up with Lufthansa stewardesses. Right. So yeah, I think there's a difference and we'll get to what I think. We'll get to that. I I guess it's it's 2009 and it's kind of a metal message because they're all predatory aspects of dating are mixed in with the free love. Like it's all kind of just mixed in together right now. Pre me too. Yeah. I think that also, I mean, this is getting to what you were talking about with this tone problem where there is a there is a a dramatic romantic comedy that this movie could be. And that's what like Matthew McConaughey and Jennifer Garner are doing. And then there's a like hangovery kind of comedy that everyone else in the movie is doing. And Uncle Wayne is the character where that pivots because his character never becomes serious enough for you to take what he's saying seriously it always pulls the punch and there's a moment later on where i think like they could have done something that really would have shifted this in a good direction and they don't but we'll talk about that um well yeah and so he tells him he's going to be visited by three ghosts and he's going to feel feelings that he hasn't felt in a long time and anything that is unpleasant is mostly for wayne's amusement which is okay right this is an edgy marley yeah and 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 right after that bathroom scene, we're not in the bedroom for the rest of the night dealing with these ghosts. We are still active with the rest of this yeah. wedding party, so, and that is quickly established because uh, McConaughey goes to the bar, needs a drink again. He hasn't drank enough tonight, and as he's drinking, he sees 
a an attractive woman at the bar. Yeah, like a mysterious looking woman. And I think this setup for the joke needed a little bit more of context for who he was going to be visited by because I had no idea what was happening. Makata sees this attractive woman and kind of slides down the bar thinking it might be a ghost. The woman turns and he just kind of cops a feel, I guess is the best way to say it. Like he just reaches out and grabs a boob and it is baffling. My mind exploded at this moment. It's like, no, I need a drink in the face. I need a slap. I need a cop. I need a lot more to happen here. Then what happens? <laughs> it's so bad because he's like, wow, it, it you feel so real. And it makes no sense that he would think this woman is a ghost because she's just dressed like any other guest at this party. And he's been at this party for a while. I don't know if she like just showed up, but like, so who this is, is his, his brother's future mother-in-law, right? Yeah. Who is, se- who is separated from the Sarge and is, she's, she seems kind of like flirty. Like she's, she sort of appreciates getting the attention ultimately is what this scene is about. But this scene, again, this is another scene that you could excise from this movie and affect the plot and the character development and everything else. Not one iota. Was this character originally meant to be the third act breakup of the... uh, Spoilers for later on. There's a big turn in the third act that has problems for the wedding. Was this character meant to be part of that? Kind of is, but not really in a big way. Was this character meant to hit at a ghost that we never got? I thought initially that I had missed something or something was dropped where the silhouette of the soon-to-be mother... I don't know what the official name for a brother's mother-in-law would be but whatever like i like was she supposed to be somebody he knew in the past and he was like oh this is like a like oh i know who that is from my past is this that yeah no it's nothing like that it's just he's grabbing a boob and getting away with it and it's funny i i think that i think that there's again like i think that this character would fit if this movie was more of a philosophical exploration of the idea of love, but because it's only half that and the other half, this like super shallow comedy that makes no sense, this character, because basically they have this conversation that's like, what, like what's wrong with like casual hookups, right? Like where the whole idea is like Matthew McConaughey is, is, is bewailing the fact that people put so much value on like the marriage connection and not so much value on like just casually having fun with people. And the mother of the mother-in-law character is kind of, she's sort of on board with that as well. And then what what this transitions into is the one bridesmaid that Matthew McConaughey's character has not hooked up with in the past coming over to ask what they were talking about. And to me, it's like, well, so you could cut that scene of like the mother-in-law and this random conversation they have that makes no sense in that moment and have it just be he goes down to the bar and this bridesmaid's there and he's going to hook up with her to try to shake his mind off of what happened with uncle wayne in the bathroom and it makes way more sense because it's his it's his drug is sex he comes out of the bathroom completely disheveled he doesn't know what's going on he starts to maybe just give a hint about questioning what he does as a lifestyle so he's down in drinks like I mean, the man who taught me this blah, 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 says a line that's like, I don't know, maybe I'm doing the right thing. And then she has a quick witty line that says, well, why don't you come up to the bedroom and prove it or whatever? Like some sort of like yeah, setup. Yeah. And 
nothing. And it, and just... it's like snapping him back to like, oh no, this is my reality. My reality right. is like, I can hook up with this woman who's definitely like 15 years younger than I am because I'm so good looking and I can manipulate her into having sex with me. Um, So he lets a drop in this conversation that his brother has also slept with one of the bridesmaids, which is a fact that we didn't get before. And this is a, a fact that is so important and gets randomly thrown in here in such a casual way that I literally forgot about it by the time it becomes important in the movie again. They're juggling the mom hookup moment. They're juggling that the brother hooked up with one of the bridesmaids. They're juggling the dad is uh, is a vet. They're juggling that the bridesmaids are here to hook up with somebody, and because the groomsmen, besides McConaughey, are all nerds, they're not. They can only hook up with one guy, and all three of them are going to try to hook up with them. They've got all these things distracting from the point. Yeah, and I think that's just. I think that's the, our both we, we're in agreement. If they just shelved all of those things. And just played this straight and maybe took out a little bit of McConaughey's predator moments, this would be a really good adaptation. This would be a really good take. Yeah. And I I think you keep that affair because a lot of the drama hinges around that. Like, like that to me is a thing that makes sense that this, his brother did this thing that he regrets because he believes in like real love and, and he doesn't know how to handle it. Have him trying to talk to Matthew McConaughey about it. It doesn't come up and aside from this random aside that you could miss if you blinked, but then it's going to be super important later. And it feels like it comes out of nowhere anyway. Um, but we don't have time to think about that, John, because McConaughey is going to have some casual sex with a bride made up in his bedroom. But, but before does it? E- well, before even that happens, though, we oh get introduced God, yes! to to Brad. Right. So Brad, the, Brad is this young, sensitive. I think he's a doctor and, and Jennifer Garner's a doctor. So they, they have that in common. Young single guy who's introduced to her at this wedding. And he is. Obviously, in and in every way, probably a better marriage candidate than Matthew McConaughey is. Um, and we get kind of like a little interaction between them where um, Matthew McConaughey now knows that Jennifer Garner is interested in Brad. Not a good, like not a memorable character at all. No. Just a plot device. And and I think if you had less of the other fluff, I, I think that there would be more room for this character to be what he needs to be, which is to present this this ticking clock for Matthew McConaughey to figure out how to change his ways. And anyway. because he's so un- unmemorable, I know he's not going to pull it off. Like, I just know this character like yeah. instantly like I spoilers. This guy is not the guy. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean. It's a rom-com. Um, so to to soothe his his hurt feelings over his true love, even though he's denying it, hooking up with this other guy, Matthew McConaughey is going to go upstairs and have a casual hookup with a bridesmaid. Before he can do that, however, we need to pay our clerk. So everybody enjoy this little ad break and we will be right back to talk about the ghost of Girlfriend's Past. If I stopped you half a crown for it, you'd think yourself who you was, wouldn't you? Hmm? But you don't think me ill used if I pay a day's wages for no work, do you? Hmm? Jeez, only one cigar, sir. It's a poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December. Hi, everybody. 
If you're anything like me, you've been listening to podcasts pretty much as long as podcasts have been a thing. And you've always dreamed that one day you would find a topic you were really passionate about and you would make that dream podcast yourself. Unfortunately, in today's day and age, when everybody and their mom and their mom's dog has a podcast, and there are so many different podcast hosting platforms to choose from, it can be a little bit difficult to find something that fits both your needs and your budget. And that is where Anchor comes in. If you are someone just breaking into the podcast scene and you're looking for a place to uh, get started hosting your podcast, Anchor is a great choice. For starters, it's totally free. There's no charge to host the files that you need for your podcast. It also has creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. So if you're someone who hasn't broken into using GarageBand or Audacity or a more professional program to record your podcast, Anchor has all of the tools you need to record right from your phone or computer. Anchor also provides seamless distribution to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many other podcast platforms, so it's really easy for you to reach a broad audience. If you're looking to monetize your podcast, you can do so with no minimum listenership through Anchor. Just record an ad and put a sponsorship segment in your show, and you're good to go. It's everything that you need to make a podcast right in one place. If you want to get started recording that podcast you've always dreamed about today, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. You ever wish you could learn just a bit more about the world, but have no idea where to start? Well, I know how you feel. And that's what the Assorted Goods Podcast is here for. Join Dan, me, a bad student turned curious mind who's just trying to get a tiny bit smarter as he gets a little older. Every episode, I pick a big topic or idea, do a little research, see what I find, and then I pass it all along to you. It's a podcast for anyone who's too damn busy to do the research. It's what I'm here for. So stop by Assorted Goods, have a listen, and join me on my journey to figure out the world one story at a time. Find Assorted Goods wherever you get your podcasts, and I'll see you there. Welcome back, everybody. So when we last left our scumbag hero, Connor Mead, he was going upstairs to hook up with some floozy because his true love was interested in another man. And when he gets into the room, he is not greeted by that floozy. He's greeted by an entirely different floozy, the ghost of girlfriend's past. Okay, okay. I was worried for a second that every ghost was going to be the ghost of girlfriend's past. So I was happy that it wasn't just just that was just the one that it wasn't like, I'm also the girl ghost of girlfriend's past. No, she is the ghost played by Emma Stone, 2009, right after Superbad and before uh, the amazing Spider-Man. And that's it, right? Nothing else. La La, la, well, la, 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 la Land. Easy oh, yeah. A. I'm joking, John. I'm joking. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. All no, kinds no, of stuff. But at the time, uh, those were the two big things. She hadn't made Easy A yet, but those she had made super bad. And that was probably her biggest claim to fame at that moment. Um, yeah. Yeah. This is right before she kind of explodes with Easy A. Uh, she is a delight in this movie. She's she's all she's 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 definitely at a 11, but she's a teenager. She's 15, 16 here. Yeah. So to me, 
this is where this movie can yeah she's supposed to be 16 this movie can be at an 11 with this and because it's emma stone it's like a really good 11 because she kind of like springs out of the bed and she's got like crazy hair and braces and she's dressed up like it's the 80s and he takes a second to remember her but basically she's his first official girlfriend well right the first they, girl they, he ever hooked up with well that's what they they they, they go into that but before we get to there what happens is we get some scenes of Jennifer Gardner's character and Matthew McConaughey in the past. They're kids. They grew up together. McConaughey. Well, and right. So, so tag. she, she takes oh, him. So ba- basically the bed turns into a car, which is hilarious and drives them into the past. And when they get there, it's that swing set, right? That swing set that we saw. Um, and we see a young Matthew McConaughey and a young Jennifer Garner. They're like eight or nine. They're little kids I, on this they're, they're, set. Yeah, they're 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 yeah, they're uh, young. I think if we go off of the other information, uh, Paul was um, what we learned right after this is we see uh, McConaughey's mom and dad in the in the in the background. They're walking away. They they die. Uh, just spoilers. Um, and I think so. He would be seven around this time. Yeah. So he's right because he was seven he, when they died. Yeah, so he's definitely not the the actor is not the age that the character is supposed to be, but there, he's seven, so she'll be about seven or six. And she, as a six year old, has gotten a present for him, and it is a camera. It's an old Polaroid camera, and he yeah. takes a picture of her on the swings. And there's a great bit of acting here by McConaughey, where he, like his affection for photography comes through, and like he really yeah. sells like. That's it, this buddy. is the Alibaba moment where he's seeing like his young self reading these books that he loved. Exactly. And he's framing it up and he's like, that's great. And I think Emma says, oh, that was your first picture you ever took. And it was of her. And he yeah. says, I'm going to keep it forever. And and McConaughey's like, I, I didn't say that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's like, are you sure this was it? my brother? Like, yeah. I love when she like keeps rewinding it and playing it forward. <laughs> That's how they did it. I forgot how they did it. It was like, she yeah. actually just rewinds it, which makes sense. If this is Jimmy's, this is all a dream moment. If it's in his head, he grew up with VHS players. So he knows about rewinding things. He knows about, you know, going backwards. So in his mind, that's how a ghost would play it. The ghost is also like eighties themed. Yeah. So, so, so you get that like rewinding, like that's kind of like an eighties throwback. Anyhow, so we flash forward a little bit and and Matthew McConaughey like sees his parents walking by and they look really happy. And he says, look how happy they are. And then like two seconds later, they are dead somehow. We look the funeral is also at this estate because it's where everything happens. And Um, we see Uncle Wayne there with him. The plot needed them to die. Just letting you know. Yeah. Yeah. And and here's where I'm going to raise my first. This was a, a bad choice because. It means that Matthew McConaughey, until the age of seven, saw like a really happy, loving relationship that only ended because of death. And to me, it's like, if you want me to believe that this is a guy who does not believe in ha- in the happiness of marriage, then you have his parents have an unhappy marriage. It makes no sense to me that, well, and we'll talk about what happens later because of like what he is as a person. I think, to be honest, John, I think seven is just old enough that you can see those examples and those examples can go marrow deep, but Mm -hmm. they can also be buried at that age. And I think I totally get what you're saying there, but I kind of like that as his anchor, 
that he does have a good example that he can maybe so here's call here's to. my thing right at no point later on in this movie are we going to get the idea that he's like afraid of loss no he, he's May, afraid of like loss maybe. because of the loss of his parents he he lost his parents so he's well, afraid no, of but that what loss I'm, what I'm, what I'm and saying, a, though, is like that doesn't come up as part of his like healing process in this movie. It, there's this big missed opportunity to talk about how his parents death affected him. All of this is going to end up getting blamed on Uncle Wayne in a second. And I think that it's it's frustrating for a reason I'll explain in a second. So Uncle Wayne takes him in and his brother, right? His young brother. And we skip ahead to high school. Right. And it's, it's it, yeah, it's the it's their freshman prom or something like that. They're really it's yeah. like the first type of formal that they would be going to freshman prom but can you tell i don't know anything about proms or any like the dances or anything like ah the freshman get a prom right listen Um, i I was homeschooled so i didn't i mean i work in a school i work in a school now so like i have no idea that's Um, out there for the world i did not go to my prom i was like i'm not getting that tux i ain't getting that limo i ain't gonna get that why why would i waste that money that makes no sense to me anyway so it's subtle, but there was a detail I, I was wondering if you'd noticed. They they subtly hint at what decade this takes place in, and I wasn't sure if you caught the subtle hint that they gave. That it was the <laughs> 70s? No, it's the 80s because everyone's wearing white gloves and doing the safety dance. Of course it's the 80s, John! Of course it's the freaking 80s! What do you mean? You didn't see the Michael Jackson guy moonwalking? You didn't see... You didn't... Like, you're, you're right, John. Like, I was like, what? Like, I had to question myself there, John. I was like, clearly this is the 80s. Like, it is So I, th- I think that it, it comes so close to being over the top, but I think the joke that they're doing is that because the ghost of girlfriends past is like a teenager from the 80s, that literally everything is like a lame cultural 80s reference and it's very funny it's a really good it's a, like a subtle it's not subtle but it's a good texture <laughs> choice over over this next couple of scenes subtle and this movie are foreign to each other <laughs> yeah yeah they, they are not subtle about any of their choices they might not make choices and they might make bad choices but they're not subtle about any of them. so basically what happens at this dance is connor is going to ask um, Jennifer Garner's character, Jenny, to dance. Uh, teenage Jennifer Garner in this, by the way, is played by the same girl who plays teenage Jennifer Garner in 13 Going on 30. Fun little factoid. Um, and he nice. totally chokes it. Yeah. He, he he chokes it and she goes to dance with like the most obvious varsity football guy ever at this dance. I think this is supposed to be the Fezziwig scene. I was really hoping, I was trying to see the second time I watched it, if the DJ was like DJ Fezziwig. Like F or something like that. I don't think it's in there, but it would be really funny. Now, see, this is where we get to the films when they start to reference on themselves again and they start to like taking ideas from each other. Just supposing here on this one, but it's possible that this is kind of in place of the uh, dead sister scene, like that is in some of these movies uh, mm-hmm. adaptations. Like this is the moment when all hope starts, like when hope starts to die inside of this character for Scrooge. And this one's like the pain he feels from failure and not being able to step up. And he's in love with this high schooler. And so he just, he runs out and he never wants to, he chokes and he never wants to feel that feeling again. And that is beginning of his um, descent into, um, how do I say this? Uh, swinger douchebaggery of yeah. uh, uncle wayne here 
Yeah, he's about to get red pilled. So um, it's pretty bad. The, when so he so to- oh man, John. Yeah. So Uncle Wayne comes to pick him up from the dance in the stabbing wagon, which made me want to dry heave. And uh, there's there's a scene here where this is like a really bad piece of writing where Uncle Wayne keeps like giving him a hard time about saying like um, p word things, and uh, one of them is asking about like where the seat belts are, and then Matthew McConaughey, who's sitting in the back seat watching Uncle Wayne and young Matthew McConaughey talk, goes like, "He never wore seat belts." Like the audience is is missing a frontal lobe, like, like they don't well, get it. Look, well, look. If it's he's a toxic man, to- toxic masculinity is bad, and McConaughey yeah. is still supposed to be wrong right now, and he's going to be wrong yeah. for a lot more of the time going forward. Then, in that respect, yes, wear your damn seatbelt is the message they're saying there. This guy is wrong, but McConaughey is so damn cool. I don't want to wear my fucking seatbelt now. I'm going to be cool like Matthew McConaughey, right? Yeah, toxic yeah, masculinity. Yeah. I think for me, the what the 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 line is when Matthew McConaughey says he never wore seatbelts. Right after Uncle Wayne gives young Matthew McConaughey a hard time about asking about seatbelts, it's the writers like going, "Did you catch that?" It's not, it reads super like that's not a, a thing a human being would say in that situation. But anyway. Um, basically young Matthew McConaughey, young Connor is upset that Jenny kissed this other boy and uncle Wayne is like, okay, we've got to, you've got to figure out how to shake this girl off. Like I can show you how to not experience these feelings again. And what basically happens is we discover that Matthew McConaughey becomes a soulless, lovelorn douchebag because he was a young teenage incel who got red pilled by an older man and turned into a pickup artist. And it sucks. It's so bad. It's so frustrating and, and makes me care so much less about this character. Like, Oh, I didn't kiss the girl at the dance. And that's the reason why 30 years later, I'm having like casual, meaningless sex with 40 women. And I can't access like the better parts of my being. It's annoying to me. I don't know. But it is that place where this movie like could be deep and funny, but instead ends up being shallow most of the time. Well, they're playing it for laughs. That's the problem. Yeah. If you played this scene 100% straight and you had Uncle Wayne go, look, I can help you never feel this way again, but that's on you. Do you want this? And like, say like, you can be like me. Do you like you? And you could have it him say it, not in a way that's too obvious where like he's saying I'm a screw up type of way, but he is saying it that way. And like, like. Okay, kid, let's go. And like, no, it's all for laughs. It's all that this is a positive, like fun thing. Even though the movie is simultaneously telling us it's not, we see it in this really great light. Now imagine if the bar they went to, they go to a bar to learn how to neg and do all these horrible pickup artist crap. Imagine if it's a seedy bar. Imagine if it's like like really disgusting and like, I think we're supposed to think that it is, though, because like basically Wayne shows him how to pick up women and Matthew McConaughey watching this go on says, like, I kind of remember the women being classier. Right. Like he's looking at it now as an adult and he's like, oh, they're like Uncle Wayne kind of picked up floozies like he almost gets it, but not quite. But the movie doesn't carry that idea far enough for it to have any weight. Like imagine if they had a moment like this is how you remember it. Right. Like this is how it looked to you snap yeah. and then it's like the worst dive bar in the world 
it, nobody is nobody is happy who's there. They're just there because it's a Friday night. They're single and old and need to drink and to yeah. forget. And that's so what's this. Happening. Yes. So this is what I was saying about about Wayne earlier. So Wayne is a one dimensional character that needs another dimension for me to buy that he is trying to help Matthew McConaughey fix his life. And this movie never has the scene where we see Wayne experiencing the consequences of his lifestyle. So there's never you need, there's you need a chain. You need a chain yeah. around Uncle Wayne to make us understand what's at stake here. Yes. There's okay. no chain. That's what it is. This movie has no chain. There's no thing about Wayne aside from him casually saying like, oh, it's not all fun and games when the music turns off and you're trying to find your pants after a night of partying. But that's all we get. And it doesn't have the weight that it needs. And it's one of the biggest places where this movie fails. I think that's that's totally correct. I think that I would definitely benefit from a chain. I think maybe I was inferring that like I had the chain already in my mind that, okay, so I'm a single dude in my early 30s and I, you know, I'm not saying I'm, you know, a ladies man or anything like that. I'm not. But it is a little scary sometimes when like you look at your decisions and you're like, I should I be with somebody? Am I not looking for like you question everything you do and you're afraid and you don't know if things are going to be all right. And it's, it's a scary thing being a single person. It really, it really is because society is telling you a lot of the time that that's wrong and you start to think it's wrong. And so I needed to, uh, so I already had that in my head giving that cre- like giving like uncle Wayne at the end of the day would not be feeling okay with this. And that's why he's mm-hmm. trying to save his uh, nephew. But yeah, you need somewhere you need an uncle death death scene or something like that. Like the scene uh, in like the 1951 movie. Like if you had that scene with Marley saying on his deathbed, it was, I was wrong. If you had that uncle Wayne scene, that would be, I think enough maybe there. Let me, let me pitch you a different one that I kind of okay. envisioned as I was watching this. So we're going to find out in the next scene that Connor ends up being homeschooled by Uncle Wayne. Some people think it's in Vegas. Some people think it's in Bangkok, which to me reads like Uncle Wayne was probably taking him to prostitutes that like that feels like that's what it's implying. But we never see it. But like picture this scene. It's. Uncle Wayne and a young Connor in a hotel. And it's like after Uncle Wayne has like hooked up with a prostitute or something. And maybe Connor, he thinks Connor is asleep and he's in the bathroom looking at himself in the mirror and he just starts to cry. Uncle Wayne does. And Connor hears it. And it's a moment it it, it for the audience. It tells us, wow, under all of this stuff, Wayne was miserable. And it makes sense now that in the afterlife, he's coming to Connor to try to fix it before it gets to that point. And for Connor, it can also plant that seed that can kind of come up later on when he finally starts to understand what that was about. But we never see that. Uncle Wayne is always cool in this movie. But what it, I like, I like that. I could also see a scene where like he overhears people laughing about his uncle, kind of yeah. like what happens with Scrooge a lot of the time. Like, he overhears like people saying like he's got all the money in the world, but he's got nobody to be with at the end of the day, or he doesn't even love himself or something like that. Or like maybe a woman is giving him an insult after an encounter that really lands with like a really yeah. good like point. Like, yes, yeah, some sort of overhearing the downside of Uncle Wayne's lifestyle because he needs to doubt it a little bit. And he yeah. has no I mean, they give us moments later on in this sequence of maybe that's where the doubt came in. 
but nothing that connects to Uncle Wade. Yeah, basically, um, the next scene is at this like basement party with a bunch of like seniors, like high schoolers or whatever. And McConaughey's character comes in and we're not supposed to think he's cool, right? Like he's supposed to seem lame, right? Because he is so lame when he comes in. I laughed out loud at how lame he is. He's like high school cool, I guess. And as a 30-year-old, that's not cool. If you were a 15 to 17-year-old in 1986 or whenever this happens, he could be cool to you. Yeah. Or at least that's the theory they're putting out there. uh, What they're trying to put out there. So yeah. I think some of it might be that the young actor doesn't sell it very well. Like the young actor is kind of doofy, so it doesn't... Well, he remember, comes in with like a like a leather jacket and his hair done a certain way. And he's like saying things that I guess on paper sounds cool, but are in fact incredibly lame to like the other guys at the party. And he blows off Jenny, who's there. Which is, you know, he his attempt at establishing a neg move so that he can then maybe go back to her eventually. Yeah. But she does, has none of it and is gone before he can make a move that night or really any other night in the foreseeable future because they don't hook up in high school. He has no relationship with her like that in high school and they move on with their lives and we join up with them about 10 years later, I think. Yeah. But not, not until he's hooked up with Emma stone in the closet at this party. And that's kind of the moment. And we find out that his first girlfriend was like a 39 minute closet hookup at a party it's very funny, like the way that it plays, because the Emma Stone ghost is pointing at the the real life Emma Stone like, oh, look at me. Look, there I am. And her performance in this is so, so funny. Like, I can't overstate how on point she is in this movie. My one gripe with that character and she what she doesn't have enough of an edge. She has moments when she's cutting and she throw things back at him. Right. Yeah. At McConaughey. But she doesn't have. I would have liked to have seen a young McConaughey be rude to her and to see that land. We don't really get that. We don't, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. We don't see the moment when her heart is broken or she feels any way about the situation. She looks pretty damn triumphant after what happens happens. Like she's walking out all happy and like she's living off that high. We don't get that McConaughey kind of screwed her over there. Now, not saying that has to be, but like if she could be yeah. able to throw that in his face a little. I, I don't know. I think I, it, it, I, I didn't feel like I missed it. Being I just there it, just because of like the tone of the character. Like, I think that character was played as a she's just like a girl who does casual hookups. Like, I don't think she ultimately would have her heart broken. I think he is kind of lame, but saw it as a, his first conquest. Well, she's pretty much talking about how it was like the best 38 minutes of her life and stuff like that. So it meant something to her. And I think even it doesn't have to be a huge moment. It doesn't even have to be a huge thing, but a little bit more of like, yeah, yeah, I meant nothing to you, but I was your like, like, like she really just would need to emphasize that a little bit more. It doesn't need to be everything because we get the real heartbreak scene in a moment. And yeah, let's get to it. Yeah. So I'm going to move through the rest of this quickly because we're kind of running long on this, but um, what basically, are we not, what are we not? <laughs> yeah, I know, I know it's true. Um, McConaughey, we, we kind of run into him later and he's like a weird long haired beatnik for this scene because every movie with 
multiple time periods has to have that period of time where the character's hair was long to show that they were young. And he's like an up and coming photographer. He's working in like a really famous photographer's studio in this point. And he kind of runs into Jenny again at a bar and he tries all of these moves on her, but she plays hard to get with him. And it kind of reels him in. Like he's just trying to like pressure her into like going for a casual hookup. And she's like, no, like, why don't you walk me back to my house? Why don't we have dinner? All this stuff. And he cares about her enough still to get reeled in by it. And then we get um, a montage of them kind of a period of time where they were dating and Emma Stone chooses to set it to time after time, which is a very funny 80s reference again. Well, of course, because she's from the 80s and this is what it's not even the 80s when this scene takes place. This is the 90s at least. So like. But she's an but, 80s teenager, so she sets it to the most 80s montage song. She has to set it to that song, and she has to set it there. And it's it's a little cheesy, but it's good. So I think it, it works because this movie is in some ways a deconstruction of, of rom-coms. It's like if you deconstruct of, yeah. a rom-com, it, so it, it, I think it has... It has intentions to be a deconstruction of rom-coms, but because it's not a good movie, it it fails in that by trying well, to be too much of a rom-com. It, weirdly, what ends up happening is is throughout this montage, he keeps coming to her door at the end of dates, and she's like, "Good night," and goes inside. And then finally, he's like, earned enough trust, I guess, that she invites him inside, and they sleep together. And then he tries to leave. Well, well, wait a minute. He before they hook up, before they go back up to her apartment. He doesn't try to pursue anything. He's yeah, he tries to go. Away. Right, right. He's yeah. already walking away and she grabs the hand and brings him up. Now, I'd like to think that that was not the first time he had done that, that that had been a couple of dates in a row where it was like he hadn't been trying to get inside. But it's a clear thing to say, like, no, he's not trying anything. He's just yeah. enjoying having a good time. And he's getting his prize now as the movies, like like yeah. most movies would sound like sex is a reward, friends yeah but 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 so yeah i think that's the most cynical way to read it i but i think the their performances sell this idea that she has slowly eroded his his desire to be a player and to hide his his fear of rejection i guess behind this facade of like of a you know casual sex guy and they sleep together and then he he gets up and like is pulling his pants on and tries to leave. And she basically gives him like a soft ultimatum of like, there are some girls that you do that with. And then there are some girls you stay in spoon and I'm a stay in spoon kind of girl. And he cares about her enough to get back into the bed. And Emma Stone says to him, basically, like, this is when you fell in love with her. And then two seconds later, and this is when you realize you were spooning and he opens his eyes. And he gets up and he leaves. And weirdly, that idea of spooning that like after you sleep with someone, you cuddle them in bed and like have emotional feelings towards them. That's like the shorthand for it in this movie. All right. All right. You win. (laughs) I see you've played knifey spoony before. So he leaves. And then Matthew McConaughey has to watch when she wakes up the next morning and he's not there. And this is the best acting I've ever seen Jennifer Garner do. Now I didn't watch like alias. Like I I haven't watched a ton of Jennifer Garner movies. So that may be an unfair statement. It's certainly the best acting she does in this movie. Like you feel the hurt that she's experiencing. And then she has to take like a call from her job while she's trying to hold it together. And it's really gut wrenching. I mean, it's a high point of this movie. And McConaughey thinks he called her. Yeah. He thinks he called her the next morning and he didn't. It was reality calling her back to it. And so immediately she has to deal with this trauma, deal with this betrayal and move on. She has no time to breathe. 
So it just, it, it, she has to pack it all in. And who can't connect with that? Like who hasn't had something happen in their life that is horrible and horrifying. And yet we have to keep moving. We have to keep doing who has done that. Who's lived through 2020. Anybody, anybody, yeah, <laughs> anybody, yeah, right. Basically, what happens is this this experience of walking out on this woman he loves catapults him into like a binge, basically. And um, Emma Stone walks him into a bar that's just full full of all of the women that he had casual affairs or sex or whatever with. Um, And this is I thought this was like a pretty good scene. It's a little bit like it's a little heavy handed. Some of it is a little bit um, on the edge of offensive. I don't know. If, if you got that same vibe, it's definitely offensive in the sense of like, look at all these women and like, it's just, I, I don't know. It just, and it's I like literally it's... every type of woman. It's like, there's a pair of twins and there's like a pageant girl and there's a flight attendant and there's a woman <sighs> who has transitioned and is now a man. And there's yeah. a woman in like traditional Chinese dress who says he dishonored her family in Chinese, which oh, I think is probably God. the low point of this movie. Uh, it's close. It's it's definitely the one that I cringed at the most. And there's a lot of cringe in here. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But it was like, oh, that just straight up like not good. That's racist, friends. <laughs> yeah. Um. And so basically, and this is our dramatic ending to the ghost of Christmas past or the ghost of girlfriends past because they all crowd in on him like it's Night of the Living Dead and he gets buried and all these women that are like trying to reach out for him. And then he falls out of the bed and is back for the moment in reality because in this version we get these kind of interludes into reality which is it's a nice twist i like i kind of like it i'm hoping maybe another version in the future will do this with a christmas carol i don't know which maybe it'll be something based off the novella maybe it'll be an original idea like this movie but i i do like i do like that choice i kind of wish in that scene i mean i wish a lot of things about that last scene there when he's seeing like the breath of his hooking up you know like yeah. I wish there was something because it's there. kind of like an infinity mirror. It's like it just goes on and on into eternity, and it feels a little bit like he's got to have at least twelve different STDs, right? Like, there's no way he comes out of that unscathed. I I think what I needed there was a a cost. I, I, I needed something there that was either draining on him that would bring this up, right? Like, or something there that he did to them that he feels regret about. Now I get it. He loves them and leaves them. He's a lover boy, all that type Mm -hmm. of stuff. But there needs to be something there. That's a little bit more like there needs to be like, like we need to either see, like, imagine if you saw all of them getting dumped by McConaughey, like all the phone calls and all the lies. And he sees all of them react to it. Like he, like, like take the Jennifer scene, right? And just mm-hmm. amp that up by the amount of women he was with. Like something, because I don't, like I get that he, McConaughey plays it like he saw something traumatic and like the weight of it is on his shoulders. He's playing it correctly, but I don't think they give him enough there to get to that moment. Like they don't, yeah, he doesn't I, earn that conclusion to the ghost of girlfriend's past. Because the asshole we meet at the beginning of the movie could maybe see that last little sequence of all the partners he's had. And almost be like, all right, all right, all right. Like, yeah. I yeah, there's. That. I think we have to take for granted that just seeing the sheer numbers and hearing all the women tell him what what a jerk he is has some kind of an impact. And then like the drama of him getting buried under all of them. But um, there is going to be kind of a payoff for this. We will get like a little bit more emotional payoff in the Ghost of Christmas Present 
But we're not talking about that till our next episode. James, before we get out of here, this is the first part of a two-parter, which means it's time for us to uh, spend some time casting carols. I've been looking forward to this part all week long, John. I am ready. All right. Uh, I'm going to pull up my random number generator here. Spin this uh, little roulette wheel a couple of times. Okay. It gave me number seven. Oh, interesting. And on my list, number seven is Mr. and Mrs. Fezziwig. It's a twofer. John, who are your Mr. and Mrs. Fezziwig? So when I think of the Fezziwigs, I think this is a a really small part of the story. If we really think about their presence in the novel, it's very small. But we know that these are characters who loom really large for Scrooge. So if I were making a film version of this, I would want them to be characters that kind of really stand out right, that have a lot of presence, that have a lot of showmanship, so they can kind of steal the scene in this moment, okay? So I need to think of characters who are big, who are broad, who can bring a lot of that kind of thing to the table. My Mr. Fezziwig is Nathan Lane. Nice, nice. Right? You get that kind of like Broadway cred. You know he can be big, he can be broad. And then I'm thinking like, okay, so I need someone who matches that energy. Someone who you put her in a scene with Nathan Lane and she can bring the same heat. She can bring the same level of like fun and comedy. So this may be an unconventional choice. And it rhymes, which is fun. My Mrs. Fezziwig is Carol Kane. Nice. Nice. Alrighty, I'm just going to double check who Carol King is real quick. Car- Carol Kane, <laughs> K-A-N-E. Like the incredible, uh, the um, uh, Kimmy Schmidt. She's the landlady in Kimmy Schmidt. Oh, yeah. She's yes, technically I, been in A Christmas Carol because she was in Scrooge, but... Oh, I know Carol King. I know Carol King. I'm sorry. I just, I didn't want to lie to the audience. Be like, oh, I know exactly who that is. I know who Carol King is, but it's it's hard to remember names. That is, I could see that. So that is our first time, I think. I mean, I'm sure Nathan Lane's been in a version of A Christmas Carol as well. Like, it's such a massive piece. Um, Yeah, Yeah, I'm sure. I could see that. I could see her energy, like... He's make cracking wise and she's slapping him in the shoulder type of a deal. Like I think, yeah. and she's great in a, in a, in a princess bride. Like she's amazing in that movie. So, oh yeah. Oh, so, I forget that she was in that. Well, that's I mean, you could even just use that miracle max and, uh, his wife is a uh, Fezziwig and Mrs. Fezziwig, uh, uh, Billy crystal. That's really good. Damn. Okay. My Mrs. Fezziwig is one of my favorite actors of all time. Uh, Not enough material is out there with her because she tragically died young. So I'm going to bring her in to play an older role that she never really got to play. I'm going with... Gildna Radner. Ooh. Okay. She can do so much with so little... And she can have maybe just, 
I could see her just having one choice made for this character. I don't know what that is, but she could do that one thing and she just steals every scene with her husband, Mr. Fezziwig, played by... Jack Black. <laughs> nice. That's a great call. Like, just imagine the two of them, like, having a fun party scene together. And uh, I just, I think, I never thought of them as a comedy duo, but I think they would really play off of each other well. I could and, totally see it, yeah. Because I was thinking of Jack Black in um, There's a Clock in the Wall. Okay, and, yeah. And whatever that movie is, I don't know the title officially, but I just the remember house, the The trail. House with a Clock in the Wall? Yeah. yeah. And I remember him having those scenes with Kate Blanchett in that in that trailer. And like, oh, I like him flirting with somebody like that, like that type of dynamic. And with Gilda in that scene, like though they, they would just be really cute with each other and be really sincere also, which I think yeah. they, if you ever see Gilda's scenes like her one woman show, uh, Gilda, if I'm not mistaken, alive. Uh, she does these little moments in her comedy scene where like she's playing a young child and it's really funny because she's completely committed to it. So I think she'd be able to do that here as well with a small yeah. part, but a lot. No, I really love that. I think that's a really great pairing too. Yeah, I, I, I think this is good. Now, John, quick question. Are we setting this period with the novella or are we doing this modern are we doing this? Like, what are our rules for like casting? I so I've been I've been envisioning it as like a period. Like, we're doing a straight up adaptation, but okay. we have a huge budget to do whatever we want. It, it's not a Scrooged or a Ghosts of Girlfriends past. It's it's a straight adaptation in period, close to the text, but we just can cast whoever we want in it. Well, John, I think that brings us to the end of our first part of this two parter here with Ghosts of Girlfriends past. I think it was pretty good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm looking forward to the next part. Well, if you have thoughts about uh, ghosts of girlfriends past or anything we talk about here on the podcast, you can reach out to us at Jacob Marley is dead at gmail.com. Uh, you can also contact us on Twitter at uh, Marley is dead pod. And uh, you can follow our Facebook page. We have a, a page on Facebook where we'll be posting updates and various things about the podcast, a few memes, if we can find them to keep up with all the leaked kids and and their hacking the mainframes. Uh, James, what uh, what else can our our, <laughs> our, our our audience that they didn't know already know you teach at a high school, John? They definitely get that now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, what else can our audience do to support us? They can go to wherever they're listening to their podcast and leave us a Five star, five star, five star, five star, five star review, please. Please. It, it really does help us out. I know it makes you hear from everybody. You hear, you know, like that bell, click that subscribe and spin around five times and Candyman will come and get you. I don't know. But like you hear all this stuff. It's a white noise in the background, but it really would help us out a lot if you could leave that five star review. So thank you if you can. Yeah, thank you. Um, a few more thank yous. Thank you to uh, Milo Newman for our brand spanking new cover art. Ooh. Really, really good stuff. Uh, thank you to Ben DeVries who provided our uh, theme and interstitial 
music under a very convenient Creative Commons license. We really appreciate being able to use like a really quality theme song for this show. Uh, and thank you to all of you who listen uh, and continue to enjoy this bizarre little podcast that we're doing here. We really, really, really enjoy it. Bizarre is the word for it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're going to go a little bit insane by the end of this year. Um, More movies But you'll like be this. there with us. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Alrighty. And in the words of Tiny Tim, God bless us, everyone. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.